Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning, and welcome to this Commonwealth Club online program. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. I was honored to serve as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the 1990s. The Commonwealth Club has suspended its in-person programming until it's safe. We've hosted over 100 live-streamed events since March. You can learn about our upcoming online events, find our video archive, or become a member by visiting commonwealthclub.org. We depend on the generous support of our members and donors to bring you programming like this and hope you'll consider making a donation online or text DONATE to 415-329-4231. Please also like, subscribe, and follow the club on social media and share videos like this one with your friends and family. Now it's my pleasure to introduce today's distinguished guests. There are many issues today surrounding national defense and our military. Should the military be used to quell domestic unrest, such as the recent protests? Should the U.S. be terminating many of our arms control treaties and even contemplating resuming nuclear testing? Should the names of Confederate military leaders be removed from U.S. military bases and their statues be removed from our public places? To address these questions and many more, today we will have a unique conversation between between two recent Secretaries of Defense, Dr. Robert Gates and General James Mattis. As a bipartisan Secretary of Defense, Secretary Robert Gates served under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He is the author of a new book, Exercise of Power, American Failures, Successes, and a New Path Forward in the Post-Cold War World. Dr. Gates was an officer in the U.S. Air Force and spent 27 years at the CIA. He served as CIA director and became the first career officer in the CIA's history to move from entry-level employee to head of the agency. Secretary Gates served as a member of the National Security Council staff in four different administrations and for eight presidents of both political parties. For his numerous professional contributions, Secretary Gates was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award by President Obama. He is also a three-time recipient of the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, one of the CIA's most prestigious honors. In conversation with him today is General James Mattis. General Mattis served as our 26th Secretary of Defense from 2017 to 2019 and is now the Davies Family Distinguished Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. General Mattis served over over 40 years in the Marine Corps, starting as an infantry officer. He later served as commander of the U.S. Joint Forces Command and as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander for Transformation. General Mattis also directed the military operations of more than 200,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, and Marines, and allied forces across the Middle East as commander of the U.S. Central Command. He commanded forces in the Persian Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan, and the Iraq War. He's been outspoken recently about the president's use of military troops in domestic unrest in Washington. Please join me now in welcoming Dr. Robert Gates and General James Mattis for this very unique conversation. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Duffy. It is a pleasure to be here with the Commonwealth Club, a club that's been devoted to finding truth and setting it loose for over 100 years. And in that spirit, I'm especially honored today to moderate the club's discussion with former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates about his latest book, Exercise of Power in which he uses lessons from the past to craft a new path forward, a guide to America's role in the world. It's a timely book, and one bringing to the forefront decades of experience and service to our country. We all recognize that Dr. Gates grew into his leadership roles with a wealth of background earned in some very tough positions. Secretary Gates is my former boss, predecessor in office, and an inspiring role model. He was likened in one recent review as the rare foot soldier who rises to high command. Secretary Gates, in reading your book, one that I would be reassured were required reading for presidents and cabinet officers when they come into office, 
I was struck by you attributing a large part of America's 25-year decline in status, in prestige, to the failure of post-Cold War presidents and congresses to recognize, resource, and effectively use what you call our arsenal of non-military instruments of power. Can you explain this fundamental failure and the significance of the title that you chose for your book? Well, first of all, thanks, Jim, for uh, participating in this, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club for uh, inviting uh, inviting me. The, the germ of the book <clears throat> really began with a question in my mind uh, of how the United States had gone from a position uh, of supreme power, probably unrivaled since the Roman Empire, in every dimension of power in 1993, uh, to a country today beset by challenges everywhere. And I thought about how did we, how did that happen? How did we get here? Uh, and so I began looking at all of the major foreign policy challenges we'd had since 1993 and uh, thinking about what we had done and what we had not done that contributed to, uh, to that uh, decline in, in our uh, role in the world and, and our power in the world. And what I came up with was uh, a set of, uh, of non-military uh, instruments of power that we had, that had played such an important role in our success in the Cold War against the Soviet Union and had largely been neglected uh, and withered uh, after the end of the Cold War. At a time when we continued to fund our military, uh, we basically dismantled all of the non-military instruments of power, from diplomacy to economic leverage to uh, strategic communications and, and, and more. We can go into that later. <clears throat> and, and as I looked at, at the situations, uh, at these challenges from Somalia and Haiti in 1993 and, and others, uh, right up to our relationship with Russia and China today, North Korea. Uh, it occurred to me that, uh, that we had failed uh, in many respects to figure out how to compete with these powers uh, outside of the military realm. And so I, I and, and the reality is of the 15 uh, challenges that I write about, for all practical purposes, i I considered 13 to be failures. And that's why in the title, uh, the word failures comes first. There are a couple of successes and they're important successes. And there are some lessons to be learned from those as well. But, but we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of problems during that 20, 27 year period. And, and I would just conclude by saying, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan both began with uh, very uh, quick military victories. And the problem that I identified, uh, whether it was Iraq and Afghanistan or Somalia or Haiti or others, was that once we had achieved military uh, victory, we then changed our mission. We then decided to move to uh, trying to bring democracy uh, and reform the governments of those countries. And that's where we ran into failure. Secretary Gates, uh, I'd like to go more deeply into what you just mentioned, uh, this symphony of power. Uh, and I, I took a few notes from your book, but could you give a brief overview of the type of instruments you're referring to and where they might be more applicable, perhaps, or most likely than using the military uh, form of power? Uh, and if they're not played, why aren't they played? But but start, please. What are these instruments? What what do you look to to bring on into the forefront here? So the two primarily coercive instruments of power are obviously the military, but I would say also cyber. In my opinion, cyber has actually become the most uh, uh, effective weapon that a nation can have because it can accomplish. Uh, military, political, and economic harm uh, to one's adversary. It's difficult to identify who perpetrated the attack, a cyber attack. It takes time to figure out attribution. 
And, and the more damage that was done, the more important it is to identify exactly where the ones and zeros came from. And, and so cyber is a, is a huge uh, player now in a way that it has never been before. It can dismantle uh, or disarm weapons. It can redirect weapons. It can shut down infrastructure in countries. So it's a very versatile uh, weapon. And it doesn't take the kind of enormous expenditure of dollars or of money uh, that a nuclear enterprise or even a, a chemical or biological uh, threat would would uh, would represent. So, so I think cyber is is a very important one, and and we've been pretty good about developing it for our military purposes. But I think we have not taken advantage of it on in an offensive way. Uh, with respect to either political or economic uh, uh, targets. Another important uh, instrument is clearly economic measures. And these can be both uh, carrots and sticks. And the truth is, as I make the point in the book, that we've developed the sticks part of the economic uh, instrument pretty well. We, we levy sanctions on any country that looks at us cross-eyed. And it's become actually very complicated for a lot of companies because we've got so many sanctions against so many countries figuring out how you can do business internationally and stay within U.S. law and become a full-time enterprise for lawyers and accountants uh, in these these companies. Uh, So we've got the sticks part of it down pretty well, embargoes, tariffs, sanctions, um, and so on. Where we have, where we've fallen down and where we, once had real capability is in how do we use economic assistance or our economy as as an asset, as a carrot uh, to encourage, to induce other countries to do what we would like for them to do or to follow policies that we would like for them uh, to follow, whether it's uh, loans at discounts, whether it's uh, economic concessions, uh, trade concessions, and so on. Um, we're, we're very good, as I said, at sanctions. We're not so hot at, at figuring out how we might advantage someone uh, in dealing with us. Now, President Clinton and President Bush both were pretty good with Africa when they arranged debt relief for a number of African countries back in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And, and that really helped a lot of African countries. But that's a rare example of us using economic measures uh, as an instrument of power. Strategic communications, or as we used to call it in the Cold War, propaganda. How do we get our message around the world? Uh, The Chinese have developed this to an extraordinary degree. Several years ago, uh, Hu Jintao uh, devoted, uh, allocated $7 billion for the Chinese to build a strategic communications network around the world. We, on the other hand, in 1998, dismantled the United States Information Agency and tucked, strate- tucked what we call public diplomacy into a corner of the State Department. Various elements of our government do strategic communications, but there's no coherent strategy. Each kind of goes its own way, and, and we also lack the capabilities uh, and reach that, that the Chinese have. There are a variety of other instruments, Jim, that, uh, that I, I'll just briefly mention things like uh, intelligence and how we use it with other countries, uh, science and technology, our higher education, our culture, use of nationalism. I mean, as we watch Russia and China interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, uh, we have failed to use their own nationalistic feelings to help build their resistance to what the Chinese and the Russians and others are doing. Um, religion is an important uh, instrument. We, we haven't thought about it in that way, but religion has played a big part in international affairs, uh, particularly since the end of the Cold War. And all you have to do is look at the role of religion in, in uh, motivating terrorists uh, to see that it has it has real power, so there are there are a dozen or more of these instruments, and the problem is we have neither resourced them nor have we figured out a cohesive strategy, a coherent strategy on how to bring them together, as I call it in the book, in a symphony where they play together and each strengthens the other, and overall strengthens the hand of the United States in dealing with the rest of the world. Why haven't we enlisted these 
uh, other instruments in the symphony of power. If America has the power of intimidation, if we're threatened, obviously, in an imperfect world, we need the military, we need the CIA. But why haven't we summoned the, the instruments of inspiration that are so strong in America? I mean, what is the reluctance for us to use non-military instruments? You know, it's really a it's a tough question to answer. I think part of it is that um, the Congress has been reluctant to fund these non-military instruments, uh, really going back to the to the end of the Cold War. It was Congress that disestablished USIA. It was Congress that wanted to disestablish the U.S. Agency for International Development. President Clinton stopped that, but still brought diminished USAID by bringing it under the State Department rather than as an independent agency. Uh, The Congress has not funded the State Department properly. Um, The State Department has been starved of resources except for a couple of brief periods during the George W. Bush administration when there was an increase in the number of foreign service officers. So there's been a reluctance on the part of the Congress to fund these things. The Congress hates development assistance. Um, they've considered it a waste of time. If we're going to spend money, why aren't we spending it here at home rather than in other countries? And they, they don't see how that can benefit the United States. So I think that partly that it's been a big part of the reason is the reluctance of the Congress to fund it. And in all honesty, the reluctance for the most part on the part of all four administrations to push for such funding, uh, the irony for me is that at a time when the Congress has become uh, more and more resistant to the use of military force overseas in the aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan, at the same time, they've refused to fund or make more robust the non-military instruments uh, that could take the place of some of that military activity. Well, in that regard, Dr. Gates, uh, you brought up the war on Iraq. You mentioned earlier the change of mission or what we call oftentimes in the Department of Defense mission creep. <clears throat> so we go into Iraq and you you write in the book that it has happened so often after the Cold War, there was a lack of imagination uh, in the White House and its State Department on how to access non-government civilian expertise in order to strengthen non-military capabilities. Uh, they seemingly had no appreciation, you go on to say, of the importance of the private sector, apart from contractors, as an instrument of power. And it, it just begs uh, the question, how can we leverage the private sector? Uh, obviously, that we, we keep the government out of some market things. I mean, we don't want a government-run economy. But how do we enlist the private sector uh, in enhancing our ability to basically exercise power, to, to again, go to the non-military aspects how do we do that? Well, the first thing is to recognize that it actually has uh, has something to contribute, and then you can figure out how to make it work. One of the things that uh, frustrated all of us in the Department of Defense, I think through all of the Iraq and Afghan war experience, was the, the, the relatively few number of civilian experts. Here we were engaged in nation building, and yet we had very few uh, relatively speaking, rel- very few civilian experts who were in country and helping make that happen. One of the instruments that had some effectiveness uh, in both Iraq and Afghanistan was something called the Provincial Reconstruction Teams, PRTs. And But at a time when we had 100, at the peak of our presence in, a, in Iraq, we had 170,000 troops in the country and we had 360 civilians in all of those PRTs in the entire country of Iraq. So one of the things that that I proposed as Secretary of Defense that uh, got no traction was uh, to go to particularly one of the things that we really could provide help with was was helping both the Afghans and the Iraqis in terms of improving their farming techniques, improving how they took care of their herds, uh, and that kind of thing, and because they're both basically rural countries. And and so I suggested to the State Department, why don't you go to our country's land-grant universities? I'd been the president of Texas A&M, so I knew what these universities were doing around the world in terms of 
really their faculties working in very inhospitable and insecure situations. Why don't you go to these universities and, and, and ask them to help to partner with us and augment what we're trying to do in these countries? Many of the faculty members were already in those countries. So how could we help them and how could we uh, help provide some funding and so on? We also had the advantage that the head of the the National Association of Land-Grant Universities was a man named Peter McPherson, who'd been the president of Michigan State University, but also the head of USAID under President Reagan. So here was a guy who could who knew what we needed to do and who could have galvanized these universities to really be a powerful partner for us. Nothing ever happened. Similarly, I think that where we can use the private sector or where we can partner with the private sector is in figuring out how we are going to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative, this trillion-dollar program of infrastructure building ports and airports and highways and sports arenas and so on uh, in uh, throughout uh, in many in most places around the world. And you know, a lot of these things are white elephant projects. They involve a lot of debt for the receiving country. The Chinese make you make these countries sign contracts with Chinese construction companies to do these things. They they don't pay much attention to doing things honestly or in ways that actually benefit the the people of the of the countries that are receiving these. If we could somehow, we can't compete with that. The Chinese, through their state-owned enterprises and banks and so on, can find the the cash. To, uh, to fund these projects. We can't do that. Our, our economy and our government just doesn't have that kind of, we're not structured that way. But what we have is a private sector that invests all over the world. And how can the United States partner with private companies in the United States and incentivize them to invest in some of these developing countries and bring jobs, bring uh, environmental concern, uh, bring sustainability, and in a way that doesn't saddle these countries with projects that end up being useless or saddle the countries with huge amounts of debt. We, we don't have any, we don't really do much in the way of, of trying to incentivize companies uh, to, to move down that path. And it's a resource that, that I think we, uh, we could make better use of. And then finally, I would say we have all these enormous uh, numbers of churches and charities and others that do uh, projects around the world, whether it's in terms of, uh, of health uh, and, and get alleviating or getting rid of diseases, the, the work of the Gates Foundation and, and a number of others. You know, they often don't want much to do with the government, but is there a way we can uh, augment their activities? Can we work in partnership with them? Uh, how can we work together? And, and frankly, there just isn't much, uh, there isn't much done uh, to try and uh, move down that road. So these are just three examples of where I think we just haven't been very imaginative in terms of how we can leverage our great strengths uh, and translate that into uh, uh, efforts to what, what I would call is shaping the international environment in a way that serves our national interests. We don't, we don't need to be uh, altogether altruistic in these efforts. After all, it's the responsibility of the president and the government to advance American interests and protect American interests around the world. But if that means you have to shape the international environment, and these are the tools that you can use to shape the international environment. Well, we have tried uh, on many occasions to shape the environment, uh, as you point out, not very imaginatively and not very, frankly, successfully. Uh, we have tried to help multiple countries get gain peace and stability. One of the successes, though, was the Columbia uh, plan. Uh, that one worked. Why did that one stand out? Why did that one work when it's in amongst such a number over a dozen, uh, what I think could objectively be called failures? Yeah, Columbia was was a success, and and it was a success under multiple presidents. So uh, by the nineteen by the late nineteen nineties, uh, Colombia was on the verge of becoming a narco state, a a, a criminal state. Uh, the the leftist insurgency, the FARC, uh, 
was on the verge of being able to take control of, of the country and the government. What made our effort in working with the Colombians successful in, in controlling and then defeating uh, the, the FARC was, first of all, we had a very strong partner in Colombia. The president of Colombia, President Uribe, was a very strong person. He was an honest person, and he was determined uh, to, to defeat the FARC. So, so we started with a, a president who was committed to democratic principles and the rule of law and, and who was determined to lead this fight uh, at considerable risk to himself. He survived a number of assassination attempts. The second thing that helped us was that there were already some basic institutions in Colombia. They were weak, but they were they had been established, and and we could help strengthen those inst- institutions inside Colombia to help carry the fight. That included both the police and the military, but also the judicial system. Uh, over the course of the Colombian uh, partnership, the Plan Colombia effort. The Justice Department trained some 40,000 judges in Colombia. A third area that, a, a third reason for success, I, I actually give credit to the Congress. The Congress limited the number of Americans who could be in Colombia at any given time to help the Colombian government. So when the plan started, they limited us to 400 military people and 400 contractors. That eventually rose to 800 military and 800 contractors, but that was it. So that meant that the Colombians had to fight the fight themselves, and our role had to be limited to supporting them, training them, and helping them become better at at carrying the fight to the FARC. So we couldn't take over this enterprise because of the limits that the Congress put on us, so we were there in support of the Colombian government. And I think that was another reason for, uh, for success was that it was up to the Colombians to solve the problem. We could help them, but we weren't going to run the show and do it for them. I think another factor was that this plan really had uh, uh, support, bipartisan support in Congress and, and was funded over a period of about 10 years or more by uh, three successive presidents. So we had the time to make things work and, and had the bipartisan support to get the funding. So for the cost, for about $10 billion over a 10 to 12-year period, we helped the Colombians put down the FARC uh, and, and regain control of their own country. Now, the program originally was sold as being uh, counter-narcotics, of trying to limit the amount of cocaine coming into the United States back in the, back in the 80s and 90s. The reality is the, the, the counter-narcotics part of this plan was a failure. But the part that was successful was allowing the Colombian government and its democratic institutions to regain control of their own country, and that's where they are today. Well, you refer to their own country, sir, and I recall uh, reading a critique of Americans in the 1920s saying it might surprise some people to hear that most people prefer an imperfect government of their own choosing rather than a perfect one forced on them by the bayonets of the U.S. Marines. I, I think uh, keeping a lesson learned that we help enable others is critical. What are the lessons learned from the failures? You, you went into a lot of detail in this book. Uh, just, a, again, a great book. I mean, I, I think it ought to be required reading uh, for anyone going into office so we don't keep doing the same thing. But for the audience today, for all of us, what, what would be the most pointed uh, uh, list of failures you can give as we try to avoid repeating those in the future? Well, I think, I think that uh, the, one, the one area where, where we have failed uh, for the most part, really involves Somalia, Haiti, uh, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, uh, and probably some others. And that is where, after an initial milit- successful military operation, we tried to bring uh, cultural and political change to the country, to make the country more like us to bring democratic principles, honest government, 
uh, and so on. And, and without realizing that we were trying to change in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, as an example, uh, thousands of years of history and the fact that our own democracy evolved over time. I mean, we're, we're, we're still facing uh, problems created uh, at, the, at the beginning of the United States with the race issues that we're dealing with in the United States today. So we still have an imperfect democracy and we've been working at it for over two centuries. And, and so thinking that we can kind of bring this to uh, force this at, at the point of a bayonet to other countries, I think, is one reason why, uh, first of all, we've been involved in, in these long lasting wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan after the initial military victories. Uh, but it's also why we fail. One of my favorite quotes is from Winston Churchill. In, in late 1944, he was uh, approached about overthrowing the dictatorship that was running uh, Greece at the time. A dictatorship, by the way, that was very supportive of what the Allies were trying to accomplish in beating, in beating the Germans, uh, beating the Nazis. And uh, they wanted him to install a democratic government. And Churchill's response was, democracy is not a harlot uh, t- to be picked up on the street at the point of a Tommy gun. And I think the principle still exists. You can't, you can't force a country to build a democracy. Now, uh, Iraq has a very, a very um, rudimentary democracy today. Uh, they're actually probably the only democratic uh, Arab government uh, in the entire Middle East. Uh, it, but the cost has been extraordinarily high. And and a lot of the Iraqis, as you know better than I do, still do not believe that the Shia-dominated government uh, serves their interests, particularly the Kurds and the and the Sunnis. So there's a, a long, very tough road ahead for Iraq. But I think a big a big part of the failures in these countries was trying to bring social, cultural, and political change, uh, basically using the United States military. I think I, I think our role should be to encourage democracy. Should be to provide people the tools, as we did the Colombians in the and the training, and encourage uh, them to move toward democracy. But the notion that we can force it and bring it about overnight, I think, contributed to a, a several of the failures uh, during this period. And and the other failures, in many instances, were a lack of imagination in terms of using these non-military instruments and, and, uh, and, and frankly, just being uh, too ambitious. There was, there, I argued against our intervention in Libya because I didn't see where we had any national interests that were at stake. Well, the, uh, the challenge is you look more broadly uh, from these uh, four cases you cited, and then you look at uh, Winston Churchill's point about uh, democracy and the difficulty. Frankly, uh, some would say the well-nigh impossible mission of forcing that on a country that's not ready for it. Uh, it you have two quotes that kind of highlight this, uh, this challenge about America's role in the world. Uh, one, uh, should America's mission be to make the world safe for democracy? Uh, this is, of course, brought from President Woodrow Wilson's uh, approach. Or in the words of John Quincy Adams, should America be the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all, but the vindicators and champion only of her own democracy? So how do you parse this when you're confronting uh, events in the world that may not be vital interests, but what is America's role as we watch the, the young people in the streets of Hong Kong, or we watch other places where People, some are trying to bring about democracy. And, of course, there's autocrats around the world who say, not on my watch, not going to happen. So where does America go forward and and when do we go forward uh, using the symphony of powers? And how do we do this? I mean, what does it look like in your in your vision? John Quincy Adams had another quote that came out of the same document uh, he said, we ought not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. In other words, we ought not go looking for trouble. Uh, I think, I, as I write in the book, I think Wilson and John Quincy Adams have to coexist. I think that uh, it is 
from the beginning of our republic, uh, we have seen ourselves uh, as the city on the hill, uh, as an example for the rest of the world uh, to follow. And, and as part of our foreign policy, to do all we could to advance the interests of uh, democracy and reform abroad and, and human and political rights. Where I draw the line is in using the military to make that happen. Uh, I think that, as we've been discussing, you can't force a country into democracy. These institutions have to be developed. Uh, you know, one of the one of the lines that we all used was uh, uh, having one election is is not synonymous with bringing democracy to a country. Democracy is based on the rule of law. It's based on institutions, and the role we can play is helping countries develop those institutions. This is where the civilian part of these instruments of power that I talk about is so important because it, it's, it's our people helping them develop their own institutions and encouraging uh, the development of those institutions. You know, USAID and, and a number of private uh, foundations in the United States funded a huge number of uh, non-governmental organizations in Russia, for example, in the 1990s to try and encourage the development of, of uh, democratic institutions and the rule of law and so on. And, it's, and it is uh, evidence that those were working, that in the, in the 2000s, Vladimir Putin essentially eliminated the ability of all of those NGOs to work in, the, in Russia. Uh, at some points, there were thousands and thousands of these, and and now they're they're just a handful. Uh, same thing in China. Uh, so so I think we can use a variety of tools, and including I would say our intelligence capabilities and and covert action. The CIA's covert action played a big role in the success of solidarity in Poland and taking on the communist regime there. There were kind of three institutions that that supported solidarity, all working independently, the Catholic Church and Pope John Paul II, CIA, and the American labor uh, unions through the AFL-CIO. So we have these instruments that we can use to encourage those trying to bring democracy to their own country and to help them strengthen those institutions. But it's us helping them, not us trying to force it on them. Dr. Gates, when you looked at China's advantages, you, you noted some with their state-run economy and what they can do with money going into certain places, uh, perhaps uh, just loading up debt on countries that will never be able to repay it uh, and, and developing some degree of, uh, of control over some sovereign, otherwise sovereign decisions. Uh, do you think the U.S. adherence uh, to stricter moral standards actually weakens us in this competition uh, that's going on between the China model, clearly an authoritarian model. It's hard to believe they would practice a kinder, gentler model externally from their country than they practice on their own people. Are we actually weakened by taking a more moral stance as we look at our role in the world uh, up against a, a Chinese model, which is basically by by your allies, um, shoulder your way in, dismiss other nations' sovereignty, uh, whether it means diplomatic or economic or, or even moral sovereignty. I mean, where do we stand in this competition? Well, I think we all, we all know that America, as, as much as we love it and, and as much as we admire it and as much as we believe it is <clears throat> unique in the history of the world, uh, and and a unique force for good is still flawed, and and we're seeing the results of that uh, in the streets of uh, most of our cities uh, in the last few weeks. But we do stand for some things, and it's not it's not you know it's not by accident that on Tiananmen Square in in the spring of 1989 that the Chinese students erected a statue that they called the Goddess of Liberty that looked an awful lot like the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. It's not an accident that the Hong Kong protesters are waving American flags. It's not an accident that during the pushback on the Iranian regime just a few months ago, 
after they shot down the airliner that uh, that they had painted an American flag. The students had painted an American flag on the steps of of one of their schools and people were walking around that flag so as not to step on it. So I think the rest of the world knows that we're flawed, but they also know we're about the only country in the world that consistently tries to get better. We consistently, we know what we believe in and we work every day at trying to make our actions coincide with our beliefs and with what we profess to uh, admire the most in, in democratic countries. So I think, I mean, we have to address our problems here at home. We do need to be a model. Uh, and frankly, we're not a very good model right now. Our, our politics are paralyzed. We can't tackle any of the big problems that our country faces, whether it's immigration or education or infrastructure uh, or other, other things. We still have to battle racial injustice, uh, but but we are trying to fix these things. And I think other countries recognize that. And as long as we continue to profess our ideals, as long as we try to help them create democracies, I think our, our ideology, if you will, uh, is, uh, is still to be admired around the world. Now, the truth is, I think that it is, tarnished now as a result of several things over the last uh, dozen years or so. The the 2008-2009 economic crisis in this country undermined sentiment around the world that the American economic model was one they wanted to emulate. Uh, I think that economic inequality in this country is a problem that other countries see and makes them wonder whether the American economic model is one they want to follow. Our paralysis, our polar, you know, polarization has been with us since the very beginning of the Republic. Uh, the, the names that Jefferson and Adams called each other would fit right into today's political campaigns. Um, but what's new since the end of the Cold War, really, is a paralysis and our inability to get really big things done in the country because the two political parties are just frozen at the federal level uh, in their in their war on each other for all practical purposes. Uh, everybody seeming to forget that uh, the only thing that makes the American system work is compromise. So I think I think right now uh, Xi Jinping in China is pointing to all of these problems that we have here at home, economic and political in particular. And, and he is arguing to the rest of the world, look at the Chinese model. We brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, we're able to have this incredible 21st century infrastructure. We're willing to help you build a modern infrastructure in your country. Uh, our mo- and we get things done. So our model is is the one that you should look to. And frankly, there are a lot of countries that look at the Chinese and they say, well, maybe they maybe their their approach, the Chinese approach is is better than the American approach. So if we want to to have our um, our ideology, our belief in liberal democracy and capitalism be a model for the rest of the world, we got a lot of repair work to do here at home. But I still believe that most of the people in the world believe that America stands for freedom and and for uh, human and political rights, and and that's our that's our uh, ace in the hole, if you will. We just have to work at making it uh, even more credible. The the problem is this right now we have a competition in the world that's going to go on for quite a while that's as old as, as, uh, as democracy itself. And that is the conflict, the competition between democracy and authoritarianism. My view is communism is dead as a doornail. Uh, the only malice left in the world are probably a handful somewhere in China and maybe a few in American universities in France or someplace. But, but I think communism is dead. Authoritarianism, though, has incredibly deep historical roots. And that's the real danger. We defeated authoritarianism twice in the in the twentieth uh, century. Uh, if we don't get our pro- get our address our problems and figure out how to move forward as a country, our ability to defeat authoritarianism in the twenty first century, I think, will be at risk. But I, I that's a very long answer to your question. But I believe that our ideology of freedom 
and our propounding that ideology is an asset for us uh, in the world, not a liability. Mr. I've often uh, learned most about our country and what freedom means to others and what we represent to others uh, through foreign eyes. I've had villagers in dirt poor villages, and I've had prime ministers and kings uh, question me on how does America do it? Uh, after no matter how bad something gets, we learn something from it. We acknowledge that we've got to improve and we roll up our sleeves and we do it. And the political paralysis right now is preventing that last part, that rolling up the sleeves and fixing things at this point. Uh, we've got some young people on and we're going to switch to uh, audience questions here shortly. But knowing we've got some young people watching, Mr. Secretary, as they watch what's going on in Washington, D.C., uh, some have approached me in my college classes. I'm sure you've heard it. You know, why should they go into government? And yet you went in, not for one tour in the Air Force, not for one tour in CIA. You stuck with it through good times and bad. Just what can you say to the young people watching today about government service, about what I consider to be the very hard work, but also the noble work of building a country? Because it's not built yet. We're still building it. But what do you say to young people who say, why should I follow Dr. Gates and put my life's work into the country or even five years work or even two years work in? How do you respond to that question? Well, first of all, I would say that uh, at the end of your life, you don't want to look back and realize that you only lived for yourself. Um, George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, uh, once said that... Uh, the only way to have a full life is and that any full life must have some measure of public service in it. Uh, you know, public service has never been easy. Uh, you know, we, we get focused on our own time. And believe me, I, I joined CIA uh, in 1966. We were just heading into the heart of the Vietnam War. Um, I lived through Watergate. I joined the National Security Council staff for the first time a few months before Nixon resigned. I used to, I used to tell people that uh, I joining the National Security Council at that time was like signing up as a deckhand on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. Uh, but I went through Watergate. We went through Vietnam. We went through uh, all the challenges of the seventies uh, and and more. I. I think you have to believe uh, in what we stand for as a country and, and, and know that you can play a part in trying to make us better. Uh, I, I, I've written uh, about public service that no matter how jaded or tough someone may see on the out, seem on the outside, that it, at root, most public servants uh, are in their heart of hearts uh, idealists and romantics and, and, and optimists that we actually believe we can make the country and the world a better place to live. And, and I, I think it's a mistake to think the only place that you can serve is at the federal level. I think what we've seen during the coronavirus is an extraordinary emergence of, uh, and recognition of local leadership and state leadership. So you don't have to go to work for CIA or you don't have to put on the country's uniform, although I hope you do. Um, but, but you can work in your local community. You can work at the state level. There are many ways in which you can provide public service and help your fellow citizens. You know, you know Jim, I hear all the time people talking about uh, their rights as citizens. What you never hear anybody talk about are people's obligations as citizens. Um, you know, everybody who puts on that uniform puts his or her life at risk for this country. It seems to me not too much to ask of others, regardless of age, to find a way that they can help serve the country uh, at some level. And, and so I, I hope that uh, the young people, and, and one of the things that I've seen, and I'm sure you see it, um, there's an extraordinary degree of volunteerism at in even in our high schools, but especially in our colleges today. You know, I feel like I have a, a better insight into uh, young people today than than most people my age. I've led a university. 
uh, in fact, what is now the largest university in the country. Uh, I've led the military with uh, millions of young people who have been willing to put on the uniform of the country. I've been national president of the Boy Scouts. And the one thing I see is the idealism of these young people and their willingness to step up and, and serve. The challenge is how many of them, once they get out of college, stop their volunteerism, stop being engaged as they have been as students uh, and get on with their lives. You don't have to be full time in public service in order to make a contribution. I, I've noticed in my hometown, I'm on the food bank board here. And when our most of our food banks are run by volunteers who are retired because they have the time. And with COVID keeping many of them home because they're vulnerable, we have high school kids who have now, because they were out of school, volunteering to come in. So we see that in the young people. And I think, too, uh, a comment by a World War II Marine uh, about a country doesn't have to be perfect to be worth fighting for. It's just always got to be improving. So we need people to come in and fight for it. Uh, to, and fighting for it may be working with the, the local school district or the city council, like you say, it doesn't have to be on a higher level. But uh, we're getting some questions in, and one of them uh, has to do with the with the uh, U.S. military. And it it's uh, not a surprising question, Dr. Gates. Are we in danger of the military being used as a tool of intimidation against the American people by the executive branch? And, of course, this goes back some of the recent events in Lafayette Square. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this concern that is not uh, unique to this one questioner at all? I, I don't think we are at risk of, uh, of that. And, and part of the reason uh, that I say that with some confidence was the strength of the reaction, particularly among retired senior military, including yourself in the, in the lead, uh, to the events on Lafayette Square and the appearance of the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary of Defense there at Lafayette Square. You know, I've worked for eight presidents, and every single one of them loves to use the military as a prop. Uh, it's about the only institution in America that still has broad bipartisan respect and support. And so presidents want uh, want the military to to sort of be the backdrop. And, and I warned couple of the presidents that I work for uh, about that. Uh, and I think what, what, that what happened at Lafayette Square actually will have a long-term benefit because it led, first of all, to General Milley's apology for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, but also an acknowledgement that it, it was not the right thing to do. And, and in all, I mean, in all fairness, I think he and Esper, the Secretary of Defense, didn't know what they were what they were getting into, and and were kind of used by the White House. Uh, and and Milley, the chairman, was smart enough to at least evade the photo op in front of the church. But but I think that the pushback uh, against the politicization of the military uh, and and the reassertion of the importance of the military remaining apolitical. Uh, has been very important, and it's been a reminder to everyone in uniform uh, about that bright red line uh, of not getting involved in in partisan politics. I would say another thing, and one of the reasons that I opposed the president's use of uh, uh, the Insurrection Act, which allows the president to use regular military troops uh, domestically, is that I think you have to people have to recognize there's a difference between the regular army and the National Guard. The regular army is taught basically to do one thing, and that's to kill our enemies. The National Guard has many purposes. You're as likely to see the National Guard handing out food at a food bank or uh, sandbagging a flooding river or providing other help in a natural disaster. They can fight. We've seen that in both Iraq and Afghanistan. But they also are trained in crowd control. They have good relationships with law enforcement. They're from the, the town or city where they're deployed. Uh, they have to take off that uniform and go back to work the next day, dealing with the people that they may have been uh, facing in a demonstration. 
So they have a different approach. They're really citizen soldiers. Uh, and and I net, didn't see anything in Lafayette Square or in any of the other things that have taken place that I didn't think could be handled effectively by local law enforcement, local or federal law enforcement, uh, augmented by the National Guard. There was no need for the regular troops, and people need to understand that distinction between the Guard and the regular Army. Yes, sir, uh, I think it's heartening because once in a while you get into a situation like this and it reminds you of some first principles, and, and everyone kind of takes a deep breath and steps back and, and uh, maybe cooler heads prevail, that sort of thing. We've got another question uh, coming in here, sir, and it goes back to some of the themes in your book, but how can or how should the U.S. reestablish itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis our allies? I always used to think that as much as I was proud of my Marines and sailors, soldiers, airmen, Coast Guardsmen even, uh, and, and I knew that we were a threat to authoritarians, any objective review would say the bigger threat was America's network of allies. That scared them more than they. That was votes in the United Nations. That was nations willing to put troops in the field alongside us. How do we reestablish with our allies a degree of reliability as someone they can count on? Because this, uh, when you talk about things being tarnished, it's pretty clear that right now a lot of allies or traditional allies, partners, they don't have that same degree of confidence. What do we do here as we look toward the future? You know, it's kind of amusing. Uh, it seems like Winston Churchill has a quote for every single possible situation. But one of, his, one of his lines was, the only thing worse than having allies is not having allies. And our allies, and, and this is one thing that disturbs me about our current foreign policy, our allies are a unique American instrument of power, are a unique American asset, and it's one that I discuss in the book. Uh, Russia and China have no allies. They have clients, but they have no allies, people with shared values and people who have a history of working together. No one pushed our allies harder than I did to increase their defense spending. And we need to keep that pressure on. They, they aren't doing as much as they should. But that doesn't mean we walk away from them if they're unsuccessful at doing that. Uh, they are a critically important asset for the United States. And just let me give you an example on the economic arena. Just take it out of the military. So we think that the Chinese really have to be, to, to, for the playing field to be level, the Chinese have to make some structural changes in the way they operate their economy and in the way they operate, they work with foreign businesses and uh, investors and so on. Just think how much more powerful our bargaining position would be if on our side of the table right now, we had the Europeans and the Japanese and the Australians and the Indians, all of them saying together to the Chinese, you must make these changes in the way you do business to level the playing field, or you will pay an economic price for it. The Chinese love dealing bilaterally with countries because in most cases they can intimidate them. What we, and, and as you suggested, they hate a, a multilateral situation where they face eight or 10 countries all arguing with them about their policies. I attended a defense minister's meeting in Asia and we had eight countries telling the Chinese Minister of Defense how uh, offensive their aggressive actions in the South China Sea were. This is a big asset for the United States, and, and I don't understand um, the unwillingness in Washington right now to, to, um, to, to understand that and, and make use of it. How do we fix it? Uh, I, think, I think actually a change in rhetoric. I think uh, being willing to reach out and consult with our allies before we make decisions and, and presenting a strategic case, listening to them, maybe adjusting our position somewhat to take into account their concerns. You know, there's just to take one example, there's nothing sacrosanct about 25,000 or 35,000 troops in Germany. And maybe there's a reason to move some of those troops to Poland or someplace else. But that's a discussion that ought to flow from that that ought to flow from a discussion with our allies and a discussion of the strategy and what's behind it and not leave the impression with them 
that we've made the decision to take 9,500 troops out of Germany because the president's annoyed with Angela Merkel for not being willing to come to a G7 meeting. Sir, I, uh, I still recall uh, one of your, one of your uh, colleagues, Condoleezza Rice, telling a bunch of young generals and admirals as she waved her finger at us. I didn't realize it was 18 inches long when she wanted to make a point. And she said, remember, gentlemen, we will do things with our allies, not to our allies. Uh, just very uh, echoing your, your point exactly. I've got to ask you one question that came in, sir, and forgive my smile as I ask you. Uh, but Secretary Gates, this person wants to thank you for your leadership, your service. Um, I think both of us can respond to that part by telling everyone listening, we don't care if you're male or female, Republican or Democrat, we don't care who you voted for. We're not interested in who you went to bed with. You were worth every bit of the service that uh, we gave. It was a privilege to serve. But this person goes on to say, is there anything you miss about working in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the, the one thing that I miss is the opportunity to interact with the uh, young people in, in uniform. Uh, I was joking with you uh, before we went on the air that I was probably the only person in Washington that went to Iraq and Afghanistan for rest and recreation. Uh, get out of the political battles of Washington and go out and on those front lines, see those 20 and 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds, men and women um, who are out there doing their part for the country with courage and honor and and their service and uh, and the the desire to help them. It would re-energize me to go back and fight the political fights in Washington. Uh, you know, I spent a long time in Washington and uh, and and I and I kind of went through everything. I went through four confirmation processes. Uh, not all of them were a lot of fun. Uh, and and, um, you know, there's nothing like uh, walking out to pick up the Washington Post on your driveway in the morning and wondering what disaster is going to face you that day, what what somebody in your organization has done that was really stupid or wrong or illegal that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, and, of course, testifying in, in front of Congress was always a really special treat. But um, uh, I, I miss the interaction with the, with the troops. Uh, but I'd have to say, and, and I would say with the colleagues that I had, at senior levels that they're really amazing men and women and, and dedicated. And I do miss that interaction, but that's, believe me, that's the only thing I miss about Washington, DC. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Dr. Gates, uh, this has been a pleasure. I think it's a reminder too, that uh, in the worst of times and our country goes through raucous periods, uh, it's, it's in our history. So if we study our history uh, we would say that there's at least one enduring lesson. Uh, we have time for one last question, sir. What would be the enduring lesson looking at our history in the midst of a pretty pretty raucous period in our democracy's life? Uh, what, what's a lesson that you would leave with us here as we pick up your book? Hopefully we're all going to be reading it again. Uh, but uh, what would you leave us with? I think it would be that our, uh, I, I actually, Two, two things that I would like to say. First of all, uh, those who wish us ill would be making a historically bad decision to underestimate American resilience and our ability to solve our problems, uh, to, to fix what is wrong or to at least make progress uh, in, toward the more perfect union uh, that we have. The other, the other lesson is that uh, goes back to the Constitution, and that is to remember that the Constitution itself <clears throat> is a bundle of very significant compromises. The American government only works if an American society only works with compromise, with understanding that everybody has to come out ahead uh, and that we're all in this together. And if you can't sit down, I mean, nobody gets their way all the time in every way. So figuring out how to compromise and move the ball forward. Ronald Reagan, 
who was one of my favorite presidents. Um, Ronald Reagan was considered to be on uh, some by a lot of people to be an ideologue, but Ronald Reagan was actually pretty pragmatic. And and Ronald Reagan's attitude in dealing with the Congress was if he could get 60 percent of what he wanted from the Congress, he would take it, pocket it and then go back again to try to get the other 40 percent. So he was always trying to get everything he wanted, but he also understood that he couldn't. And he was willing to settle for half a loaf because half a loaf was better than nothing. And, And I wish our leaders across the political spectrum would remember that lesson from American history. Uh, it's a lesson that'll stand the test of time, sir, because it already always has for a couple hundred years. And if we don't keep it in mind, uh, we're not going to turn over a country in better shape to our children. So it's critical we do so. Uh, our thanks to you, Mr. Secretary. It's good to see you again, even at a social distance. Uh, author of Exercise of Power, America's Failures, Successes, and a new path forward in the post-Cold War world. We encourage all of you to buy a copy and please send it to your elected leaders. Tell them to read and heed it. Uh, Also express our appreciation to all the viewers joining us online. The club has a wide range of virtual programs coming up, so please visit their website for more information. I'm General Jim Mattis, and this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.